Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Like I told him earlier, I am sorry that I'm not Mike, but I am thankful that you got to be led by Michael and Lacey in such a great worship experience this morning. Thankful for them, certainly, and all that they do. Um, we've, we've been feeling led more and more here at Apex to celebrate that which God is doing. You know, if... if we know anything. We know that this, this last year and a half has presented us with circumstances that seem anything but ideal. But our God's been at work through it. And you hear it, I'm, I'm prone to say it, and you're probably prone to say it as well, God is still on his throne. And that's true, but our God is not just a God who's still on his throne. Our God is a God who is in this with us. Our God is not just the God who's in charge, but he's the God who's involved. So we're going to see that as we journey together through the passage this morning. God is not simply in charge. God is involved. One of the things that we wanted to celebrate at least once a month, month was our missions partners, and you got to see Matt in our first mission highlight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matt Garrett has been serving here for years, and he works for the India Gospel League, as you heard. He's going to be out in the lobby after the service today. If you have any questions for him or want to know how to get plugged in, want to know how you can be praying even more specifically for what's going on in India. But we're thankful that God is doing things, even through us, right? Even through us, and his will is being done. The Great Commission is what we highlighted then this morning and the work with the India Gospel League. And the Great Commission is what's highlighted in these passages that we've been going through together. The book of Acts is essentially the disciples responding to Jesus' call to go and reach the world. You know, I went to um, Wright State, and I, I, I went there originally planning to study music, and I really wanted to become a professor somewhere. But just about a year in, God really made it clear that he wanted ministry for me. He wanted me to give up on my plans and, and follow him and do what he wanted me to do. And when he did that, I started taking all the religion courses I could. I took every single religion course virtually that they offered at Wright State. And I loved it. It was fun. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone because it's definitely a different environment. But one thing I know when I read this passage and you think about all that these early disciples went through to get the message of the gospel out to people, I think, man, that's... That's got to be tough. But to them, it wasn't just a story, right? They had seen it. They had witnessed it. They had been a part of it. To them, it was as real as anything they had ever known, right? And my professors at Wright State, it was funny because we studied Judaism, we studied uh, Hindu, we studied Islam, and all the professors in those respective courses were you know, represented the religion that they were teaching about. So our Jewish um, studies professor was Jewish. Our Hindu professor was a practicing Hindu. Our Islam professor was a Muslim. But when it came to our Christianity professors and our Bible professors, they were agnostics or atheists, <laughs> which is, is funny. We had one, my favorite was a universalist. He was my favorite, he was still weird, don't get me wrong, but that's just the way it was. But one of the things that they said that I'll never forget was you know, they would ask, a lot of us were Christians who were taking the courses. I mean, who else goes to study religion unless you're just really interested in the history of religion and things like that? But a lot of us were Christians, so we kind of were dealing with this weird dynamic where we were being taught the Bible by people who didn't really believe it in the same way that we did. And one thing that they said that I'll never forget was they said this. 
They said there's no doubt that Jesus Christ was a real historical figure, that he came, that he developed a following, that he taught all over the, the ancient Near East, and that he eventually died on a Roman cross. They said there is no doubt that that historically is accurate. But they went one step farther, and they said there's also no doubt that Jesus' disciples truly believed that he had risen from the dead. And I thought that was interesting. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, because they all died for it. You don't die for something that's not real to you. You don't lay down your life. You don't go to a cross yourself. You don't get stoned yourself. You don't become beheaded for continuing to preach this, this message of grace and redemption if it's something that you don't truly believe. Now, of course, they didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, but the disciples did, and that's my point. If we read the scriptures, if we trust the scriptures, then we know that he spent 40 days after he rose from the dead with his disciples. There was no doubt in their minds. And just before he ascended to heaven, he gave them that final charge, go and reach the whole world. So the book of Acts is just that. It's them living it out. It's God working through his people, his broken people, his imperfect people, but getting the job done through them anyway. Our God is not just the God in charge, but he's the God involved. So my prayer for us this morning, my prayer for myself this week has been make the story real to me. You have these times, especially when you first become a Christian or when, when these good things happen, when you see God move in a spectacular way where it just becomes so real but then you get back into the monotony, right? You get back into the work, you get back into the school, you get back into the family stuff, you get back into the paying bills, and little by little, it starts just to become a story to you again. So my prayer is that God would stir up our hearts, that he would make it as real as it actually is, and then that we would live our lives out of that reality. Peter was the first to openly acknowledge and affirm that Jesus was who he said he was. And you remember the story, I know. Jesus approaches Peter and he said, Peter, who do the people say that I am? And Peter responds, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say you're Elijah, some people say you're this, some people say you're that. And Jesus said, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. So this tells us a few things as we get rolling here. One, it tells us that Jesus will have his church here in this world. There's no doubt about it. The second thing that this can tell us is that the church will be attacked, it will be persecuted, it will be vilified, it will be shamed from the outside and from every side and not just by those people in our world today who are antagonistic towards us, but by the very powers of hell, by everything that hell can muster, it will be attacked. But the third truth we can realize from this is that the church will remain. And the reason for that is simple, because it is not dependent on us that the church is sustained. I mean, thank God for that, or every church I'd ever been a part of would have crumbled. Jesus created the church. Jesus sustains the church. God said that he is the, the creator and the sustainer of the world, and the same is true of the church. Even though that is true, though, 
we're blessed that God calls us into the story. We're blessed that, as Mike said a couple weeks ago, we're caught up in the big story of God. He calls us into the work of redemption and grace that he is doing throughout the world. This section of Acts shows us, and often in stunning detail, what God working through his people can look like. This represents what is called the, the first missionary journey, Paul's first missionary journey. And in actuality, it was the first time the church had gotten together and intentionally selected, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, some men to go out and preach the gospel and reach the lost. It would serve as a catalyst for many more things like this to come. It would serve as a catalyst by which, in the first 200 years after this, the entire Roman world would be reached with the gospel. In the year 313, I'm sure you're aware that the Roman emperor himself declared Christianity the official religion of the empire. But it came through difficulty. It didn't come easily. That first 200-year period was also the period in which the church was almost universally persecuted the hardest. But God created the church he grew the church. He sustained the church in spite of it all. God uses imperfect people and their imperfect work in imperfect situations to bring about his perfect will. And it works exactly the same way today. It works exactly the same way today. Let's look at Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. says, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for the privilege of just joining together here to worship you, to hear your word, to be changed by you, to be filled by you. God, our prayer, again, is that you would make this real to us. Do whatever you can, God, to stir our souls, to stir our hearts, to call us into your story. In Jesus' name, amen. So this short passage uh, is what fell to me to preach on, and it's, it's kind of funny because it's almost a transitionary passage between what precedes it and one cup comes after it. It's, it's almost... You know, Paul and Barnabas went to the next place and they did the same thing that they did before. So before it, you'll see some very specific events that happen and after it, you'll see some very specific things that took place. But at first glance, it seems just kind of general. General info, this is what they did next. If you look in the back of your Bibles, many of you have maps and you can see the, the first missionary journey laid out and it was just a series of dots and lines that start in Antioch and travel down through the sea and stop in Cyprus and then back up to the mainland in a couple spots. And really, if you look at it, it seems unremarkable. 
it does little to impress upon first glance. And then when you compare it with the missionary journeys to follow, the second, third, and fourth, it's quickly eclipsed in scope and scale by the others. And it's easy to forget that this was a 1,600-mile journey that lasted months. I can't imagine a 1,600-mile journey to all these places with the one goal in mind of getting the gospel to the people that needed to hear it. It must have been a difficult and expensive thing to be a part of, but this was what the church thought they should do in response to hearing the Great Commission. So chapter 14 opens in a familiar way with Paul's arrival in a new region, this new center of cultural and, and political, you know, it was just another place. They would go from place to place and stop in the places that were the most heavily populated. Here at Iconium, we find uh, a place just like that. All around it, there's kind of desolation, rugged landscape, so they get to the nearest place that has the most people and they start preaching the gospel. The city today is in modern-day Turkey. It's called Konya, and it's still very heavily populated. You can still see the influences of Christianity there. But it begins, they went as usual into the synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a large number of Jews and Greeks believed. At this point, we can see that they had established a pattern. You can see it time and time again. When they go to a new place, they went straight to the synagogue and began to speak, began to preach, began to tell the good news of what Jesus had done. You can think, well, I wonder why they did that. And many people have developed really broad, sweeping theological arguments about why they went right to the Jews first. Well, did they have some kind of preference? Were they still God's people? And so they, they had the right to hear it first. You know, was it, Paul said in Romans 1, salvation is for everyone, the Jew first and the Greek. So, but I think when we get down into it, I mean, the, the bigger picture, the, the thrust of it is, is really different. Salvation is to everyone, Paul says. The Jew first and the Gentile, that's the subclause. Salvation is for everyone. God had done this new thing and everyone was invited to the table. I mean, as I read this, I think if I was Paul going to a new place, that's probably where I would have gone first too. Because these Jews who were at the synagogue or the God-fearing Greeks who were at the synagogue would have all the foundational knowledge in which the story of Jesus and what he'd done would make the most sense. Right, you can see it time and time again throughout the scriptures when Peter or Paul or Jesus himself is, is speaking. What do they do? They constantly refer to the Old Testament, drawing from it. And then you see when Paul goes and speaks to Greeks alone, it's a little different. The bones of the gospel are the same, but the meat on the bones is a little different. You see Paul, when he goes and speaks to the philosopher, philosophers, it's, it's a different type of message. The heart of the message is the same, but it's in a different presentation. Because now... Salvation is for everyone. God's people aren't just a certain cultural group. It's not just a certain race. It's not even just, it's for everyone. Everyone. I would encourage you, uh, if you get a chance in the next few weeks, to read through the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians um, is the book written back to the churches that were planted all on this first missionary journey. And it's very interesting to hear that the same struggles that the church had when it began, the struggles between the, the, 
religious Jews and these new Christians that no one really knew quite how to understand yet, but that struggle persisted throughout the church's early life. It's just interesting to connect them with what we're going through here in Acts. But in the book of Galatians, we can see that Christians were beginning a little bit to be accepted by the Jews, but the Jews not knowing really how to affirm them and accept them, not really quite understanding what this was all about yet, insisted that if you really want to be part of the people of God, then your males have to be circumcised. So Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, and what does he say? He says, circumcision means nothing. He says, if you allow yourselves as Christians to now be circumcised, then you will not have understood the message of grace that we brought you. Salvation is for everyone. This is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a gift of God. There's not a religious hoop that you have to jump through to attain God's favor. Now, I don't mean to say by that that God just welcomes us as we are and that's the end of it. Because you know, you who have truly decided to follow Christ, you who have truly became a a Christian, you know this don't you, that that when you truly lay your life down before your king, he changes everything about you. I mean, there is nothing he doesn't change. But he welcomes you, no matter where you are, no matter what your religious background, no matter what you look like, no matter the sins of your past, there is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, everyone is welcome to accept this message of grace. Verse two goes on. It talks about the rising tension. There were Jews who refused to believe and they began to stir up the Gentiles and poison their minds against the brothers. This is just a reaffirmation, isn't it? That when the truth is preached, tension comes. When the truth is preached, divides are created. It's a paradox, isn't it? That the most inclusive religion the world has ever known creates such clear divides. Verse three goes on. They spent considerable time there. Even in space, even in the face, excuse me, of this rising tension, they spent considerable time there continuing to preach, continuing to do what they felt led and called to do. And God was with it, right? God enabled them to do signs and wonders. God confirmed the message that they were given. We see again that God is in it with us. He's not just shouting commands from some distant throne. He's in it with us. He confirmed his message by enabling them to do signs and wonders. God has a way of working through adversity. God has a way of working through all types of circumstances to bring about the impact for the kingdom that he wants. Uh, It's a hard truth to wrap your head around, especially when you're living it, especially when it's you who's in trouble, when it's you who's being maligned or when people's minds are being poisoned against you or when you're all out being persecuted, which is not something that most of us, we understand, will face to the extent that many in our world do. But God has a way of working through all that. It reminds me of that C.S. Lewis quote from A Grief Observed. 
I don't know if you've read that, but it's a great little book. Painful, but true, just raw. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, what do people mean when they say they don't fear God because God is good? What do people mean when they say they don't fear God because God is good? Have they never been to a dentist? <laughs> you see, we, we sometimes allow ourselves to believe that as long as we feel good, then God's will is being done. But sometimes, man, sometimes God's will is done through difficult things, through difficult circumstances through circumstances we might not necessarily choose for ourselves, I think God will often do what is best for us and through us, though it certainly might not feel that way when, when we're in the middle of it. Many of you know that I've, I've been blessed and one of my passions is international missions. And the first mission trip I'm on was one of those times where I just, it clicked, I got it. I felt the nearness of God it changed my life. I've never quite been the same. And as soon as we got back from there, another opportunity presented itself to go to Guatemala. And my family, a few of my family members and a little church we connected with here locally, just we started raising funds. We started raising money. We started planning and preparing and getting ready because we were just on fire. We were excited. We were ready to go and do whatever God wanted us to do. The week before, we were set to go, we got a phone call. The phone call was from the missions organization in Guatemala that we were supposed to go and work with, and they said, well, we, don't, we didn't feel right not telling you this. That's always a fun way to start a phone call. They said, there was a, a small team that came, um, that just came, uh, and they said, we went and picked them up at the airport, and they got on a bus, and we, started driving the four hours back to the compound where we were staying. They said just before we got to the village where the compound was, the bus stopped and vehicles blocked it in on every side. Gunshots started firing up through the bus. All of a sudden, numerous men exited these vehicles, came up and pried the bus doors open, got on. The bus driver, who works for the missions organization, tried to hold them off, but he was overwhelmed very quickly and was beaten pretty severely. They took everything that the, this mission team had brought, everything of value. They, they had nothing left. They drug them off the bus. They tied their hands and feet, laid them face down in a field. And he said, thankfully, they left after that. So here I am, 19 years old, still a pretty new Christian. I'm like, oh no, this got really heavy really quick. Like I didn't, I didn't really know it was going to be dangerous. I didn't really think it was going to be, you know, I, what do you do? I mean, it didn't take us too long. We prayed about it and we decided we're gonna go anyway. We're gonna do what God wants us to do and we're just gonna rely on him to take care of it. And man, I'm thankful we did because I led mission teams there for 10 years and saw God do the most incredible things that I've ever seen him do. That mission trip experience that I had on my first trip, I got to witness dozens and dozens of people have those kind of experiences. That mission team that went the week before us, we um, met them as they left and we arrived. And it worked out that just about every year we would go, 
we would cross paths. They never stopped going because they understood that God was at work even though the, the, the circumstances, the situation didn't seem perfect. The people that did all this to them were caught up with not long after it happened and were sent to prison. And this mission team went down every year and went to the prison to share the gospel. You know, those people who did this to them gave their lives to Jesus. Like, I mean, God works in ways that are not what we would choose. They're never what we would choose. But God's will is done. Another thing I'll I'll tell you really quick. Because God works in this way, sometimes it's hard to know what God is doing through you, isn't it? Sometimes you do something and you're like, oh, that was a failure. What, what was all that about? But then God will give you these glimpses every one, once in a while, won't he? And, and which, I was talking to Jason this week, uh, and he said, man, there was this lady who came up to me and she said, do you remember that message you preached in Xenia like six or seven years ago? Do you remember that? She said it was about this and this and this, and she's like, that absolutely changed my life. And he said, I, have, I had, had no idea what she was talking about. But that's the way God works, isn't it? My wife and I and our children lived in Lexington for a while before we moved back here. And uh, we were at a concert one night at Asbury Seminary. We were invited to a concert. And we were sitting there waiting for the concert to start. And um, my wife was sitting next to me. And she keeps looking down like several rows in front of us, down toward the front. And I said, what are you doing? She said, I, th- I think that's, what's his name? Eswin. His name's Eswin. She said, I think that's Eswin. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, I think that's Eswin. We worked with him in Guatemala. He was one of the orphans. And I said, that is not Eswin. Like, this kid is like 18 or 19 now. We, we knew him when he was like eight or nine, probably. There is no way that that's one of the, the hundred kids from, from the orphanage we worked with. She said, I'm going down there. I said, we're not going down there. We're not going down there. She said, I'm going down there. And I, she grabbed me by the arm and dragged me down front. I'm like, man, this is gonna be the most embarrassing thing ever. This little kid is probably, he's not gonna have any idea what's going on. And she said, are you Eswin? And he looked up slowly. He's like, Naomi, it's you. Like, how, how did we have an impact in the little stuff that we did that this kid remembers 10 years later? Like, that's what I pray for for each of us, that God would just give us glimpses that what we do matters, even though it doesn't feel good all the time. I mean, Guatemala is a nice place. It's a beautiful place. But man, you have to take a lot of Pepto. (laughs) But I pray for those glimpses for you. I pray for success for you. But more than anything, I pray that you understand what success looks like. You're successful in what you do when God's will is done. You're successful not when all your plans go exactly how you want them, but when God does whatever he wants to do through you.
if you are concerned about the state of the U.S. right now, for whatever reason, pray, seek God, ask him what he wants you to do, and then just do it. If you're concerned and heartbroken about Haiti this morning, then pray and seek God and ask him what he wants you to do and do it. If you're concerned about Afghanistan, then pray and seek the face of the Lord and ask him what he wants you to do and do it. It might seem in your eyes entirely insignificant, but God is gonna work through it. The persecution of the church just like the church, will never really fade. Sometimes it's highlighted in certain areas of the world, but God's will is being done. Sometimes we get discouraged because we keep hearing that the church in the West is slowly diminishing, but then we forget that church in other places in the world is growing faster than it ever has. God's will is being done. Don't allow yourself for even a moment to imagine that anything is taking God by surprise. Just as the song said, we sang earlier, he takes what is and he makes it beautiful. Paul said, I planted the seed and Apollo swattered, but what? God is making it grow. We can learn a lot from this passage that we've talked about this morning. I know I've learned a lot just processing through it this week. We can learn that Paul had a specific plan when he went into these places, a specific strategy. And I'm like a lot of you, I I really have a heart for and think that organic evangelism is really good, you know, coffee shop type evangelism. But maybe in my own life, I need to develop a more specific strategy. I think God's gonna gonna take care of it anyways, though, don't you? We can learn that resistance and persecution are to be expected when sharing the truth of the gospel. The Bible says it's foolishness. The message of the cross is absolute foolishness to those who are perishing. We can learn that we should be bold in our witness. We can learn that even the gospel which welcomes everyone creates clear divides. We can learn that God allowed Paul and Barnabas to perform signs and wonders. And just in the same way that he did it then, he can do it now. It might not always be a miracle or something, but God is at work behind it all. The bigger point though, the biggest point, I think, of this whole passage and that which is around it is that God's word doesn't return void. We have to remind ourselves again and again that our God is not just a God on a throne shouting orders. He's the God in this with us. He's not just the God in charge, but he's the God involved. He uses imperfect people and their imperfect work to get his perfect will accomplished. In the weeks to come, we'll see Paul and Barnabas make their way back to Antioch. There's another interesting thing that we see. Paul goes on and is eventually stoned not long after this. They think he's dead, so they drag him outside the city gates and just leave him there for the animals to take care of, but he doesn't end up dying. He gets back up, and what does he do? He retraces his steps and goes back to all the little villages that he's just been through. Like, if I was traveling with Paul, 
I'd be like, I'm going to go the other way, I think. I don't know that that's the best idea. I'm pretty sure we're going to get killed. But Paul shows us how important discipleship is. Evangelism is important. Planting churches is important. But the growth of these churches, the encouragement of these churches is equally important. It's worth risking for as well. The gospel didn't return void. They got back to Antioch and told about all that God had done. They shared about how successful their journey was because God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And again, if I were them, I don't know that I'd think that was very successful. I mean, we've been ridiculed. We've been mocked. We've been thrown out of virtually every place we've been. Paul was stoned and almost died. In the best place, they started worshiping us and thinking we were gods because of the miracles that God was allowing us to perform. Like it just didn't go to plan, but it did go to plan because the gospel had broken through. God had broken through. How real is the story to you right now? Man, I know it's been a tough time. How real is it to you? How near do you feel that God is to you? Are you in a season where it just feels like a drought? And pray that God would stir up something within you by whatever means necessary to light that fire inside you again. I pray often that God would do that for me. And he often does. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes I just go through the same droughts that everyone else does, but... The more you pray for something like that, too, the more your eyes are open to see God at work. When I was, again, still a fairly young Christian, I was leading a a youth group at a large church in the area, and we went to a thing called YEC. Some of you might have, have been around and know what that is or been to it yourself, but it was the Youth Evangelism Conference, and they did it every year at uh, the Nutter Center. And essentially what it was, it it wasn't anything crazy, but they would just invite all the youth groups from the area. And the the point was, you're going to have a lot of friends in your life. You're going to have a lot of people who will never, ever set foot in the church. It's too foreign of a concept to them. They are way too intimidated or put off by the churchiness of things. So what we'll do is we'll just put a a big event on. We'll invite these big name bands in and we'll have this entertainment and skit guys and all kinds of stuff. Just invite them. They can come have fun if nothing else. And then we'll just share a brief gospel presentation at the end. That's it. So we went and it was fun every time we went and we'd take all kinds of kids. And um, the the thing that we did was they asked the youth leaders and the pastors and any volunteers that wanted to to just kind of be down towards the front when stuff ended, you know, during the end of the message, just like an, an altar call or something you'd see in a lot of churches. So we did. The message wrapped up. The kids all were having fun, and um, I had made my way down to the front. Well, there were so many of us leaders down at the front. They said, well, why don't you just come off to the side? And there are these uh, practice basketball gyms that are attached to the arena. So we ended up going in there. And there were probably 200 of us. I can remember as a young Christian, I I just looked around and I thought, they're not going to need me. I don't need to be here. 
Like there are plenty of people to, to pray with people or to counsel people or to lead people to Jesus. Like I'm, I'm just gonna get in the way. But I waited and I waited and the message wrapped up and the first few kids started coming through the door. And then more kids started coming through the door and then more high schoolers started coming. And I mean, pretty soon I looked around and 50% of these youth leaders and pastors had connected with a kid and, and was praying somewhere. And five minutes more passed, and I look around again, and 80%. There's just a few of us still standing, and you can hear people around the room crying and praying and falling on their face before the Lord. And man, I'd never seen anything like it. And a few minutes more pass, and I kind of look around, and I realize I'm the only person in this whole place that's still standing up. Like, my, my excitement had been building. My heart was beating faster because, I, I mean, what, in my mind, I'm going to get to lead someone to the Lord or, or something. It's going to be awesome. And I kept getting more and more exciting, excited. But after everyone else in the room had connected with someone and was praying or, or just discussing difficult things that they were going through, the excitement that had welled up within me was kind of souring a little bit. It was kind of becoming... A disappointment because I stood there and stood there and that was it. No one else was coming. I'm like, man, really? <laughs> there are 600 people around me right now and I'm the only doofus standing up here in the middle of this room with no one to like pray with or, you know, I don't get to lead anyone to, to the Lord or however you want to say it. So I put on a brave face after a few minutes, I started walking back toward the door, trying to hide the fact that my chin might have been trembling a little bit. And just as I got to the door, one last girl walked through. Just tears streaming down her face. So I went up and introduced myself, and we went and sat down. And she's, she's a local person, so I won't say her name. I don't want to cause her any embarrassment, but she said, I became a Christian earlier this year. And I said, fantastic. Fantastic. And I just, I just let her talk. And she said, I became a Christian earlier this year, but my family aren't Christians. My family call themselves, call themselves atheists. And she's like, they hate me now. My mom and dad just hate me now. They say the meanest things. They call me all kinds of names. They just continuously tell me how stupid I am for giving into this churchy stuff. But you see, when she first walked through the door, my mind, as it often does, it jumped to a conclusion. You see, this girl had cerebral palsy. And the reason it had taken her so long to get there was because she barely had any function in her legs. She walked with the help of two crutches. In my mind, I just thought, man, it had to have been hard for her to get all the way down here. I know any one of us would have been more than happy to go to wherever she was. It had to have been hard. It had to have been embarrassing being helped down steps to try and get down here. Maybe she's in physical pain because of having to make it all this way, down hundreds of steps and around the corner to this place we were in and then she shared about her family and I thought man that's hard that must be why she's crying 
to have a mom and dad who just constantly tell you how stupid you are. And I finally asked her, what, what's wrong? How can I pray for you? What can I do? And she said, the reason I'm so sad is because I've experienced this love like nothing I've ever experienced before. And the only thing I want is for my mom and dad to experience it too. Her tears weren't for her. Her tears weren't because of any pain or any discomfort or any embarrassment. They weren't because people were being mean to her. They were because she desperately wanted her family and her friends to experience the same love that she had experienced. It was real to her. I mean, she lived on the other side of Dayton and I was a youth leader somewhere else and we didn't have a chance to, to reconnect. I genuinely believe that God worked through her to reach her family though. But here's the other thing I know. She impacted me that day. God impacted me through her that day. She didn't come down hoping to make an impact on me and change my life in any way, but that's what God did The story was real to her. It impacted me. I thought to myself, man, I don't know that I've ever cried over someone who hasn't experienced the love of God yet. I don't know that I've ever taken it that serious, even with my own family members. But the more real the story is to you, the more that will be the case. The nearer you feel God to you, and God is as near now as he's ever been, but when you recognize that, when you realize that, when you allow him to break through, when you open your eyes and your hearts and you're ready for that, then he'll do amazing things.